yes yeah, it's, it's i've been in a lot of situations in collabs where the other person has taken it back for like one last turn or whatever and then given it back and it's like it's not the song anymore it's like you've thought about this way too hard yeah <laughs> and kind of like fucked it up a little bit um, in, in those situations are you are you good at telling them like do you have the kind of the the confidence to tell them that you don't like it anymore or do you just stop working on it because that's a problem i always run into welcome to the mr bill podcast i'm bill's manager anand harsh editor-in-chief of the unce.com another day in paradise huh folks a special shout out to all our international friends who are living their normal lives while we in america are trapped in this nightmare scenario. Today's guest is Canada's own Kermode. The bass producer has played Shambhala, released on Monster Cat, and has been an instructor with producer Dojo, as well as at SAE Vancouver. Super talented guy, and he and Bill have a lively conversation. I do want to mention we've got a special bonus feature for fans on the show today. Patrons at the Pish Posh tier are able to send in a tune of their own to be played on the podcast, and Bill himself will provide his unedited, unfiltered feedback on the track. Buyer beware, Bill literally can't help himself, so the critique you get is exactly what's on his mind. No sugarcoating. On this episode, we have the very first featured track, and you don't want to miss Bill's reaction. If you're brave enough to join the Pish Posh tier or any of the subscription levels on the Patreon, you're going to get bonus episodes, merch bundles, early access to shows, and more. Go to patreon.com slash Tunes to sign up. Finally, you're going to want to go to MrBillsTunes.com to become a hardcore Abletoneer. You get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials, and it's just an incredible resource from beginners to novice to expert producers. We seriously hear that all the time. All right, here's Bill's chat with Kermode. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. sweet well yeah i just i just want to say thanks for finally doing this i know i kind of came out of nowhere asking to come on but i appreciate you having me on yeah no man i'm I'm, uh yeah stoked to finally have a chat i know that we've like briefly met i think at a few shows maybe at least that one did we we met right like it yeah you you uh you and au5 austin came through vancouver and i actually I was on right before you, and I remember mm. it was right when I was getting into like bass house and electro, and I felt really bad because I came out with this just weird housey set, which was totally, <laughs> totally not a fit for the night. Mm. Um, and then otherwise, we've talked um, when you did a few courses for cymatics, um, right, or the one, yeah. the one course I was kind of the the guy coordinating and getting you involved. Right. Yeah. Um- yeah, so I'm like somewhat familiar with what you do. Like, yeah, my, my experiences with, with your presence in the 
electronic music industry have been exactly both of those things, which is yeah, playing the electro set before us in Vancouver and meeting you there. And then also um, the cymatic stuff, which is where I more know you from. And I think the first time I ever, like, I, I think I just saw your name a bunch in like Ableton groups and shit like that. But then I, I feel like I, the first time I kind of truly connected dots with who you were was when, um, when Geta got angry oh at uh, cymatics for <laughs> copying like, they, they kind of released a project file yeah. to, you know, reverse engineer so people could learn from it. And it sounded exactly like a getter track. Yeah. And, um, and he was on Snapchat, I think it was at the time, or Instagram stories or whatever it was at the time. I'm pretty sure it was Snapchat just being like, fuck all you. And like one of the videos he like had that he was being like, fuck you too, was you. Yeah, that, that was my first experience with uh, like an internet mob. Because yeah, essentially at the time I was sort of, in a way, the face, kind of the face of Cymatics, where I was doing most of their video work for their YouTube. And so, yeah, they came out with this product, which was essentially several project files, which were blatant ripoffs of people, like, you know, a Flume project file, a Getter project file. And and I, I had to do kind of like a, a walkthrough video of this product that they made. And, you know, obviously... In, in that regard, it looks like I am the one creating it and I'm the one selling it and releasing it. And uh, Getter, yeah, he posted a series of Snapchats saying fuck Cymatics. And uh, that was my first experience with an onslaught of of internet hate. But I, I mean, I don't think it was completely unwarranted. You know, I've, I've kind of reflected on, on that situation. And if that had been me, if that had been a company blatantly recreating my song and selling it i feel like i'd be pretty pissed off too kind of but it's i don't know i kind of feel like somebody copying your stuff is sort of like the highest form of flattery like i've had a bunch of people at this stage um you know watch all of my tutorials and stuff and then basically send me a track being like hey and it's essentially just something that sounds exactly like a project file that i've released and i'm like yeah, good work. You just copied exactly what I do. Like, that's not the point. But yeah, I mean, it's very flattering. Yeah, I think, Thank you. I, I, I think I, uh, Skrillex said something like that in an interview or actually about the whole situation on Twitter because I remember several people came out and talked about it. And he was saying that people have been like bootlegging and remixing and using his material or copying his material since day one. And it, mm -hmm. if anything, it does kind of just progress the scene and, and keep people working I think you also, now that we're bringing this up, I think you even tweeted something around the same time. I'm curious if you still feel the same way. And it was, and I think this is what you said, that if if your song is something that people can easily copy and emulate, is it even that good a song in the first place? Um, yeah, so that's a, yeah, let's unpack that. Um, I, I don't agree with that statement anymore. Uh uh, to some degree, there's some truth in it, but that, that was probably just me being a fucking idiot. But um, so here's the thing, right? Is like there's amazing songs that are written on piano, like say some Elton John song or whatever, right? That someone who's probably been playing piano for like two or three years could probably like play, right? And, mm -hmm. and nail it and do a very good job of it. Does that mean that song is bad? Not necessarily. I mean, something that's simple uh that's easily recreatable doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good song i feel yeah, like no, I, to I some degree that. um those simple things that like are very easy to recreate are sometimes 
the best songs, right? Because it's something that's so simple, but nobody else did, or maybe they did do, but didn't apply it in the same way you did, and that's why the the thing got so big. Well, and I think hard hard is or simple is hard. Where you know myself when I was around, kind of like the four or five year mark of producing. I was trying to mask the fact that I didn't really, you know, have good songwriting by just adding tons of layers and edits and essentially, yeah, masking the simplicity, thinking that complexity was was talent in a way. And I think where I'm at now is kind of realizing that that's not necessarily the case. And that's actually for more of like a, a niche listening audience where to do simple well is quite challenging. Totally. Yeah, I think um, the some of the best songs are the ones where you listen to it and you're like, fucking obviously this song exists. You mm-hmm. know, like I feel that way when I listen to a lot of G. Jones. I'm like, of, of course this riff happened. Like who? How, how did nobody think of this before, Greg? You know, like it's the simplest thing, but it feels so natural and it's executed so flawlessly that you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm of course this song exists <laughs> and yeah. I feel like also um specifically with greg's stuff like listening to it it's it's so simple like that and so so flawlessly executed but you can also tell that it's like like intelligent you can tell that that it's required some you know serious thought and it's coming from a producer who really knows what they're doing and stuff like that on the technical side so um yeah i feel like for me personally that's the the perfect middle ground is when something could be flawlessly executed somebody who who has no idea what they're doing can listen to it and appreciate it and be like that's great that sounds awesome but someone who's really intelligent and well not necessarily intelligent but someone who's really like proficient at producing and is a really good sound designer and a really good mix engineer and like you know from the technical side can also appreciate it for those merits mm-hmm. as well w- would you argue that your recent recent being the past year or two kind of delve into more the dubstep realm starting with like your your Essex uh collab EP um and now wub wub ep and maybe not the halftime ep but would you argue those are sort of that because you know i would say the bass melodies in a lot of those songs are pretty simple and catchy and then and then the technical proficiency is subtle with you know your fills and do you think you're you're adopting that philosophy with with those records i'm trying to yeah I, i always feel like i'll make stuff that's like too complicated to begin with usually uh, and then I'll sort of refine it by actually removing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so usually the fills that you hear come from the start of the process, which is me doing too much. And then the sort of uh, broader stroke stuff is usually kind of done last, surprisingly, because oh, I'm like, all right, let's just like remove all of this stuff, just put a simple riff and then leave that technical thing I did first as a fill or something like that. But yeah, I, I definitely feel like I'm trying to go more in that direction because, yeah, that that philosophy is kind of how I feel about like like good music right and to me the shit that i keep going back to and listening to over and over again is not the stuff that i listen to and i'm like whoa that production is so insane and that mix down is so good and that sound design is so cool like these are not the tracks that i keep going back to because if that were the case i would just listen to frequent all day every day you know yeah (laughs) um but the stuff that I keep going back and listening to over and over again is is stuff that's like really satisfying to listen to, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of Dead Mouse stuff is like that. It's very 
it's very well executed. You can tell it's intelligent. It's just got really nice, satisfying songwriting, like big, nice chord progressions. All the sounds are just like clean and just, you know, everything is just in its place. It's just all kind of perfectly done. Um, and that's stuff I can listen to over and over again and, and it's satisfying every time. Whereas a lot of the sound designy technical stuff, I kind of have to be A, in front of a good set of speakers to appreciate it and B, just like in the mood for that kind of stuff, I guess. So yeah, I've been trying to air more on the side of, you know, not necessarily Dead Mouse's style, but like the way that I feel about Dead Mouse's music, where it's just mm-hmm. big, satisfying music, but done really nicely. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I was in the car the other day and uh, I think it's a new Rusco track or newish Rusco track came on called Opium. And the drop on it is just like the simplest bass melody. It never really varies other than the fills are kind of subtly different but he doesn't even change up like the tone of the wobble as the song progresses and at first i'm like man how can someone who's been doing this for so long put something out that's so repetitive and simple but then you know when it came on i noticed myself immediately loving the melody like singing the melody of his of the drop while while something more technical yeah i agree with you it's kind of a, a headspace you have to be in and it's interesting. I'm actually in a pretty similar place and path as you are right now, where the the last time we saw each other in person, I was kind of in this electro bass house kick where I was just doing, you know, choppy sort of electro stuff. But recently I've been really getting back into simple bass music, like, well, not simple, but as we're saying, kind of that more songwriting simple fun for the listener and memorable for the listener type of realm and that's what i just most recently put out um on ill gates's label producer dojo which i'm sure you're kind of familiar with yeah 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 so i i agree like um a lot of the stuff i listen to that i find i keep going back to the first time i listen to it i'll be like wow this is kind of super simple and like maybe they should have done a little more with it like technically and stuff like that but then i'll find I'll be sitting there one day and I'll be like, oh, I want to listen to that really simple song again because <laughs> it's yeah. just like got something to it that's really cool. And I think that's like part of being a good producer is, is being a good songwriter, obviously, because you're, you're wearing that hat as well. So it's um, a lot of the time, and Boris Brescia talks about this in some of his videos. Um, <clears throat> hold on, i got to get my cat off me. <laughs> um, <laughs> All good, man. Yeah, Boris Brescia talks about this in a lot of his videos where he's just like, once you have the idea you don't want to overwork it like you just want to sort of get it on paper mix it a little bit but like you know don't don't spend too much time overworking the the fills and the edits and the and the mix down and all that stuff because you end up sucking the life out of it mm-hmm. and i feel like a lot of these producers like rusco and stuff are just really really good at at that they're, they're very good at just putting the idea down <clears throat> and then just being like that's it it's it's done and like having the maturity to kind of walk away from it and not fuck with it anymore. Whereas a lot of um, <clears throat> kind of younger, more amateur producers, and, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but it certainly has been a, a thing that I've seen a lot of cases of with, with younger producers who are more fresh, is they'll create something like that that's really fresh and really cool and satisfying. And then they'll send me a version two <laughs> and it'll be like completely <laughs> yeah. different and rewritten. And there'll be like a shitload of unnecessary sound design just sort of detracting from the idea and stuff like that Um, i've I've been having that problem with collabs recently where you know they'll have an idea they'll pass it to me i'll work on it i'll mix it and i'll kind of like love where the song is 
and then they'll ask for one more turn with it and then by the you know the second or third pass around i find a lot of my collabs or at least the online ones are starting to lose their their core idea and mm-hmm. I, I don't know I, I do you still do a lot of collabs online or are you mostly a proponent of doing them in person I much prefer to do them in person, but obviously right now that's not possible. So um, I do I do them online. Uh, however, yeah, I much prefer it in person. But I, I know what you're talking about. It's um, yeah, it's, it's I've been in a lot of situations and collabs where the other person has taken it back for like one last turn or whatever, and then given it back, and it's like it's not the song anymore. It's like you've thought about this way too hard. Yeah, <laughs> and kind of like fucked it up a little bit. Um, in those situations are you are you good at telling them like do you have the kind of the the confidence to tell them that you don't like it anymore or do you just stop working on it because that's a problem i always run into oh yeah absolutely um i'll I'll usually mention i'm not like super into this i like the version before a lot more um and most times we can meet in the middle right like if if i'm have a conversation with them and, and i'm like all right if you're totally sold on all this stuff mm-hmm. that you're doing let's keep some of it but like let's you know reel it back to sort of the the raw idea that it was uh and then sometimes if i can't get to that middle ground then i'm like all right this isn't actually a collab and i just stop working on it yeah totally <clears throat> uh but yeah lately um i get this thing happen a lot right because i've done a lot of collabs uh where everyone thinks that it's like just possible to collab with me i guess so um, I get hit up by just a lot of young people who are like, hey, you want to collab? And I'm like, sure. And then they're like, all right, I got this idea. And they send me through just like a one bar melody or like a <laughs> one bar drum beat that sounds like it just came straight out of a sample pack. And I'm like, uh, this isn't a song idea at all. Like yeah. you're literally just asking me to write a song and put your name on it. Um, so I've been getting that experience a lot lately. Uh, and that is, yeah, kind of a bit annoying. So I, I these days when it comes to collaborating online, Pretty much the only way it happens is if I hear someone that I like uh, and then hit them up personally. Mm-hmm. I pretty much don't accept collabs from anyone who asks me at this point. Yeah, because it's definitely hard and annoying when people expect you to take the the weight on. My past few collabs, I've actually been approaching at a different angle where I've been super into engineering the past couple of years. And I've, there's a lot of just phenomenal producers out of Vancouver where... I just find maybe their engineering skills aren't there, but the writing is. So I've actually been really enjoying collabs where I kind of come into almost a, a 70% finished idea. Like almost they did nail that core idea. And then I just kind of come in and mix it, add a couple ideas, maybe arrange it tighter. Um, and I don't know. I feel like maybe people think there's weird stigma around that, but I still call that a collab in a way. Yeah. Even I if mean, it's more of an I engineer suppose- approach. In that case, um, if you go back to how stuff was done in like the 70s or whatever, uh, and let's say you know, someone like Madonna wrote a song, uh, does that mean the, the person who put the microphones up in front of the piano and her voice was a collaborator? That's a great question. I mean, the pop world would argue otherwise since the pop world is really the name the whoever the money maker is is the name and then otherwise it's just credits from there so maybe maybe not so the uh your sort of so I've, I've just, test for who a collaborator is is who makes the money when it's being sold uh maybe in pop music i wouldn't argue in electronic music but in in pop music it's i guess it's i wouldn't even call it collaboration it's almost like ghost production where 
whoever the quote unquote artist is, is often just the performer of the lead concept. And I say often, obviously there are huge exceptions like artists like Sia and stuff like that. But, you know, an artist like Justin Bieber, he is primarily a singer and then he'll have writers and he'll have, uh, you know, the people who produce the beats engineer it. And although I consider that a collaboration, I'd say the mass audience doesn't care to find out who who's involved in the track besides the main artist. Hmm, so sure. so in, in pop music, I would say that is the case. And I don't think it should be the case in something like electronic music. Although even then, you still do run into to situations where, quote unquote, the, the moneymaker might be a DJ who doesn't write their own music, gets ghost produced so that they have presentable music so they can tour and thus make more money. I wouldn't argue that person is the the artist but I think that is uh, just how the music industry works in many right, so, situations. So the parameters for who is a collaborator are economical. So that means technically a DJ's manager and agent are also collaborators, right? I guess so. I, you know, I would argue maybe not in the musical sense, in the artistic sense, but I, I like to think so where I definitely consider my project, Kermodi, to be a lot more than just myself, even at this stage. Like I definitely think my manager is part of this project. And and I like, anytime I announce something to him, I say, this is our thing, or this happened to us, or at least when I'm talking to him. And then, you know, the same goes for visual artists or, um, you know, even musical artists who are involved in the project. I consider them part of it in a way. Right. What about if you think about this from the perspective of filmmaking, uh, you have like the person who wrote the script, right? Mm -hmm. So let's call them in the musical world, the songwriter, like the person who came up with the melody. Uh, But then you have uh, the melody and the drum beat and maybe the vocals or something like that. And then you have, you know, the cinematographer, the director of photography, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So let's call them, say, the the producers of, of the track. Uh, and then you have, you know, the editors, uh, the person who does all the color grading at the end, uh, all that sort of stuff. I guess you call them like the mix engineer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and stuff like that. So, I mean, you, you could really call like the process of filmmaking a big collaboration, right? That just has yeah. shitloads of people involved with it. So I kind of feel like bringing this right back to your initial statement about somebody sort of bringing you a 70% finished idea and you finishing it and mixing it and all of that stuff. If you look at it kind of that way, I think you could definitely call it a legitimate collaboration. And also yeah. I think, uh, you know, collaborating works differently with different people. Like for instance, um, uh, damn man, my cat won't leave me alone right now. Uh, with Ganja White Knight, for instance, uh, it's only one of them that writes all the music. And then the other one does like video editing and really? helps run, yeah, helps run the label and stuff like that. So he's in some ways more administrative. He also puts the live sets together. So one of them doesn't have to like put all the live stuff together. So <clears throat> yeah, I mean like that's just their dynamic for collaborating, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost like, I don't know. I almost find like a, a name of an artist now a lot of times is almost just like the the collected, collective umbrella for the concept, you know, like Marshmallow, Marshmallow extends far beyond music 
it, it extends into the visual element, the promotion, his manager, Mo. And I would argue that Marshmallow isn't just dot com or whoever it is that's writing the music. It really is that umbrella of uh, entertainment and and the world in itself. Yeah, it's so, like a brand, right? Yeah, and I, and I would argue that's a massive collaboration in a sense. Um, you know, I don't, especially at, at that level, I don't even know how much um, of the production is 100% original in the sense that I get wind of artists who are essentially sent demo boxes of, of really well-made songs and they get to pick and maybe help finish it, put their name on it and call that a, a finished product. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I mean... If you think about it this way, um, like in the way that we're talking about collaboration and stuff like that, uh, that, that's probably what Bass Nectar means, right? When he talks about the Bass Nectar project being a collaborative project, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, <laughs> for him, it makes a lot of sense because he really doesn't, as far as I could tell, wasn't doing a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were writing most of his music for him. I think Jansen was like putting together most of his set edits and stuff like that. Really? Uh, as far as I know, I mean, I yeah. don't know the whole story and yeah, I don't think anyone really does because he worked with a lot of people and you know a lot of people did a lot of different things for him but yeah I think at the end of the day he was more of like a project manager by the sounds of it yeah uh, and, and that's why uh, I mean this is kind of one of the topics I, w- I want to talk about too because I, I enjoyed you talking about on the podcast with Dylan and Mimi and stuff is you know with the the whole b- recent base nectar situation I don't think fans should necessarily feel a lot of shame for trusting him or loving the project or or even still having any sort of slight admiration for the project because in a lot of ways it is a lot more than just Lauren um you know it is the other collaborators it is his team it is his uh charities or I don't know if I'd call them charities but you know what I mean? Like it stretches beyond a lot more. And I think for people to feel ashamed to have supported that, um, they're paying attention to just one person. And although it's definitely hard to still listen to them, especially for myself or them, um, it's not just him, you know? Well, the problem is that he's the one who made the most money, right? So he was the, and he was the face of the whole thing. And like, there's a lot like it was kind of mostly him like I, yes a lot of people did the work um and made that possible to to be executed in the way that it was <clears throat> but he was at the end the one who was you know profiting probably the most financially from it and you know being a being the face of the whole project so i think like it's it's easy to scapegoat him and totally reasonable mm-hmm. um given the stuff that he's done to look at him and be like hey fuck that guy and yeah, yeah especially feel shame with, for being um being tricked by him personally kind of it does feel that way i mean as myself like i'm uh, a lot of my fan base knows that i got into electronic music primarily when i discovered bass nectar or at least that was the catalyst for wanting to produce and and go down this path and i definitely felt a sense of betrayal it, it really it really felt like that where you know one lesson i learned is that you really don't know these artists like i had this total fantastical concept of who he was based off of his tweets and his interviews and his music and i had this perception of what i i think you know lauren ashton is who i think that is and 
one thing I've really learned from this whole situation is that it really isn't who they are. You know, we don't know these people's private lives. We don't know who anyone is. Like even yourself, I, I feel like I get a sense of who you are because of your tutorials and admiring your music for many years. But I really don't know anything about you. Like in your in your last podcast with Flashbulb, talking about recent addictions and and I think you've mentioned in a few podcasts like uh poly your polyamorous relationship all these things i don't know that about you but we create these fantastical perceptions of who these people are right yeah i try to be pretty honest about who i am um i I try not to be uh fantastical or i try not to um superimpose this this idea of a perfect person on front of my project like i'm always trying to be pretty real for this Mm -hmm. reason right like i don't want anyone and and i've thought this since day one i've never really wanted anyone to be into my project for some like you know identification reason you know kind of like I think a lot of people were with Bass Nectar. They kind of built their identity on being a bass head and following mm-hmm. him around and, and all of this kind of stuff. I, I just want people to to be into my project on the merits of what I do, like, you know, whether that be playing a set or putting a information out or you know, just being who I am, talking about the stuff that I talk about and you know, having the personality that I have and all that stuff. I, I want people to like me for those things. Like, I don't, I don't want people to like me for some weird... Uh, you know facade well i just think naturally humans idolize uh other people especially artists and actors and things like that we just tend to gravitate towards that like even though for example you say you don't necessarily want that um when i taught at sae i don't know if you remember morgan um i forget his last name were you you one of morgan's teachers yeah, I was. Or awesome. part-time part-time teacher. This is um, prim- primo for anyone listening. Yeah, exactly. And he, I don't want to use the term idolized you because I, I don't know who he is, but he's a huge fan. You know, he'd wear your hoodie and he was always really stoked to be a moderator in your Discord. And even though you may not want that, I think that that's just an extension of being artist. An artist is like people, for some reason hold it in high regard like I, I do that and i'm something i'm trying not to do realizing that artists are all human but why do you think that is like why do you think well, artists think, and actors and stuff like that become idolized well hold on let me let me address something else first yeah. um the reason why morgan is a fan though is because he likes me exactly based on the merits that i just mentioned he just likes my personality and likes the work that i'm putting out right he doesn't i mean and i guess he can identify with that because he just feels like he's a similar type of person Mm -hmm. but i guess what i was trying to say is like if you put a big facade up and try and become this like sort of sensationalized type of person or idea it's a lot of effort to maintain i feel like you know like you, you then have to be that every day of your life and it just feels like a lot of extra incurred stress to to try yeah. and be this thing or keep these secrets or whatever um yeah but as for cr- why art, uh, artists and um and actors and shit get so big i mean i think it's for different reasons i think the whole electronic music artist thing is kind of weird in the sense that there is this big sort of like veil in between what the audience sees and the person mm-hmm. they put up these like all these sort of barriers and sensationalized sort of covers and stuff like that to make themselves look you know very big and interesting and inhuman you know like like 
I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but you know, it seems like a lot of artists try to try to put on this big show to 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 uh, I don't know how to. Explain no, I know it. What you, I know what you mean, and sometimes it's I like I even notice myself guilty of it, where in the sense that you know I'll post a bunch of show pictures on Instagram quite regularly because it it's perceptually like I play big rooms all the time when really that might have been one show with like five pick like a whole album of pictures from it mm-hmm. and i think a lot of us do do that i think it's uh, a big part of the nature of social media and i'm not saying it's good in fact i find it incredibly toxic i actually have grown to hate social media but where we try to project ourselves as being awesome and happy and then people in turn will think we're awesome and happy and uh, i mean you're saying you don't do that which is awesome but i think i'm even guilty of putting on this fake facade just as an, a nature of the beast or not even fake that that sounds like i'm a liar but um hyper magnifying the awesome parts of my life and not mm. not necessarily showcasing all the negative things that go on behind the scenes which Maybe I should. Maybe that's something I should talk about more and be more open about. Right. Yeah, I think um, to answer your other question about why artists and actors get so big, I think part of the reason is has to do with identity, right? Like, um, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot. If you, my The example I always give is like if you're a weird kid in the Midwest who went to a school in Joliet, Illinois, and you're getting bullied every day, and then you all of a sudden find the base community and you're like, holy shit, like I this is the kind of person I am. Like I'm this weird kind of slightly obscured from uh, the rest of society type person who likes this weird music and stuff like that. Then you can identify with being a bass head. You feel like you have somewhere to belong. You feel like you have a family kind of thing. Like it's this whole thing. Same with excision, you know, it's like you want to be that kid who goes to the excision show and wears your excision shirt and throws up their X and draws excision X's on side of their mum's fridge and shit like that it's um this whole like identity thing i think and yeah yeah i think i think that's why a lot of artists get big but the reason why a lot of actors get big i think is completely different i think it's because they're attractive and because they're funny and because like their personality is sort of i think why they they, they get big and we also see them in these absolutely unhuman situations where a lot of the time they're acting and hopefully in a believable way in these crazy worlds and situations and maybe part of our subconscious kind of believes it for a time. I mean, like even someone like Mark Hamill, when he was Luke Skywalker, I'm sure people loved him because he was Luke Skywalker to them. You know what I mean? Like they had that storytelling connection. And at the end of the day, humans love stories and they love art, or at least I like to believe that's one of our biggest loves. As right. humans. It also probably makes people feel hopeful, right? To see something that is inhuman and, and that is perfect and being completely written to feel such ways. Because um, then, you, you know, you can look at it from your shitty life perspective or whatever, uh, like the, the collective you, not you personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at it and uh, an actor that's playing a part like that and it makes you feel hope for humanity kind of. Yeah. You could argue the same about music then where music has this emotional weight on people, especially when they're younger. I think it's a lot more um, impactful in the long term of their life. And that impact is what what people fall in love with. Like, again, kind of talking about me 
growing up as like a bass nectar fan i think that's because i was so young when i discovered him like i was like 16 17 and discovering him then the emotions i felt from that music really resonated with me and i think that's why i think that's why people connect with music and musicians is because music is the language of emotion and for someone to tap into your emotions like that probably is quite uh impactful for the most part right so do you find that you you've you no longer idolize musicians do you like do you idolize people or maybe now that you know more about like the coding world or something do you find you're interested in in people or idolize them for different reasons or do you keep your your head screwed on right in terms of that i mean usually if i hear someone that's like an extremely technically proficient producer or somebody who i've seen produce personally and i know that they're really technically proficient um or someone who's got sort of a bunch of different skills who are like you know maybe they're really good at djing or something like that like you know, sticky buds or something like that i don't know mm-hmm. i like you know a bunch of different people for different reasons and stuff but yeah i generally don't think i idolize anyone so much usually when i see someone who's like really technically proficient at something it more gives me a feeling of just like wow that's possible like that person spent enough time to to get that good and it, it makes me just like want to strive harder to be better myself usually yeah i mean that's one thing i've i've really tried to hone in on as i've gotten older is that no one is uh inaccessible in terms of skill unless you have some sort of like mutation where you're hyper intelligent like someone like elon musk but i feel like most skills are something that's acquirable um it's arguable apparently and this is an argument i hear from friends of mine who are really smart is that elon musk is not that intelligent he's just a really good businessman i i mean i don't know i don't know him personally i just know it, there was a one kind of question that i found really interesting when he was on the joe rogan podcast where joe rogan asked if he thought there was anything weird about him and he said he thought he had a mutation possibly because elon he said this yeah he said it in the podcast where he th- thinks he might have some sort of mutation because he hyper Solve, like he solves problems uh, at an excessive amount and like he likes to solve complicated problems. Um, and I've always gotten the perception that he worked in his businesses less as just a businessman, more as like a an engineer and overseer. But I mean, what do I know? I, I, this kind of goes back to the idolization thing. It's like, what do I actually know about Elon Musk? Yeah, I, I think more what's going on is he's hiring people to do a lot of this work. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing with myself is I actually find I, I admire producers less and less and I admire people outside my field more and more where it's like I love uh, beatboxers. I love pro video game players, but I, I wouldn't say idolize. I'd say admire is a better word nowadays. Well, that's because when you know exactly how hard something is to do or what it takes to get there it becomes a little less impressive because you're like, oh, I've sort of done that. Or like, you know, I could do that. I would just need to change X, Y, Z about my regimen or something like that. Uh, but, you know, when you're, um, <clears throat> when you're looking at someone who's really good at something that you're not and you don't really understand how much practice or what kind of regimen you would even need to get started to, to get better at said thing or whatever, it, it is more impressive because there's more unknowns to it. Mm-hmm. So for you, there's just this kind of disconnect between where you're at and where they're at. <laughs> and you, you know, you just kind of look at it and be like, well, that's like, how the fuck? 
Do you ever miss hearing music from the old perspective of someone who didn't understand it? Do you ever do you ever miss that sensation or do you find you can still get there? I don't. So I don't really remember it um, for starters, but I, I don't really ever remember a time in my life where I would listen to music and not pull apart layers, to be honest. Hmm. That's, <sighs> I'm jealous. <laughs> However, I will say that um, I do feel like the music I enjoy the most these days is where I can't tell where the layers start and end. If yeah. it sounds like the layers are very separated, I'm not a huge fan of it. I really like hearing mixed sounds where everything is just sort of gelled together and you can't really tell uh, like where the bass ends and the kick drum starts or like where the uh, where the snare actually is and what's a hi-hat on top of the snare or like where uh, <clears throat> where the bass and the synth spectrum meet and stuff like that. I really like stuff that's just kind of all gelled together in this really nice coherent way. That's actually one reason I've been really liking a lot of uh, rhythm and dubstep lately. Like I used to, for some reason, not really be into it and used to think it was, I don't know, it just wasn't my thing. But now like artists like Ula Sile and Ace Aura, I find there's this insane, this ins- I, to me, like I'm just so perplexed at some of the layers going on. Um, the blending between harmony, bass design, what's like a weird glitch that they've layered on. It's it's pretty cool what people are doing now with dubstep. It's kind of going in a direction I didn't ever anticipate when, you know, back in 2011 when it was just like Flux Pavilion style and that yeah, type of thing. Wubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is also interesting though, because then there's the whole other branch now, which is just wubs. Like going back to that old sound, but modern, like the whole sub-carbon drama club type of a dubstep it's interesting yeah. it's kind of going both ways simultaneously yeah i'd agree yeah 19k as well is sort of like that um i yeah i like it i kind of like the fact that that these old things are getting rehashed my my old manager had um had a cool saying that he would he would say to me sometimes and he was like uh the only thing that sells better than sex is nostalgia and i think that's kind of what's going on here a little bit is is this old sound is making people feel sort of young again or something yeah i i completely feel that that's actually kind of how i felt about that rusco track i was talking about earlier where when i listen to it now it's just like such a simple melody it kind of brings me back to that old ukf dubstep sound that got me into everything in the first place but now it's just got a nice sexy modern mix down which is amazing right do you listen Um, to much outside of electronic music or are you mostly just listen to electronic music nowadays? Mostly electronic music, but if I'm going to listen to something that's not electronic music, it's usually in the realm of pretty technical metal. Oh, cool. Uh, or maybe like pop music. Honestly, I listen to some some pop music, but a lot of that could really be called... I mean, a lot of pop music and a lot of metal could be called electronic music, to be honest, at this point. I mean, arguably, yeah, most music is run through so much production or has so much added production to it that I would argue everything is kind of electronic music. Even metal, a lot of times, like the drums will be, you know, tracked, but then replaced with studio drummer or, um, or you'll have like single people producing metal records, which is kind of cool. Like one man army kind of type of stuff. Right. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about teaching. So you said um, you teach now at Producer Dojo, but you were teaching at SAE or you still teach at SAE? 
So I'm a kind of like a part-time teacher at SAE Vancouver, where when things were normal, um, pre-COVID era, I would teach like the term twos uh, synthesis. So I would teach an entire term. They would come in once a week with me and I would teach them synthesis. But I also am a substitute teacher there. So I cover everything from Ableton 101, which is first semester stuff, to term three, which is more engineering, mixed down type thing. But I even come in sometimes as a guest uh, speaker to do like business lectures, you know, how to how to uh, build a career from the perspective of a producer. Um, but and that's pretty ongoing. I've been doing that for a few years and it's still ongoing. And then I just started uh, working at the dojo, but I'm kind of a weird exception where I circumvented the dojo sort of um, way, which is the students themselves go through the program and then they have the opportunity to teach other students. But I was invited on by Dylan as what's called a premier sensei, where people can book me for more advanced education um, and more in-depth concepts. So I'm like part of the dojo, but not as a ninja or a student. I'm kind of this uh, exception to the rule, which I'm quite grateful for. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Um, and I, are you yeah, enjoying I've, teaching? Yeah, it's something I've always liked doing. I, I've taught for several years. I mean, when I worked at Cymatics, I was not only a sound designer there, but I was also you know a teacher in the sense that I do um, their tutorials and I do Academy.fm, which was their uh, course website. I'd do stuff there. I used to have a YouTube channel called Frequency Quest, which uh, actually was quite doing quite well. And then uh, Cymatics made me delete it. And then, <laughs> and then I've got my own YouTube channel now. So I've I've always had education ongoing. I think it's a fun way to connect with people, and uh, it's a great way to you know just build connections in people's lives beyond just the music. I find more people know me for my education than music, which I wish it wasn't the case, but that is how it is. Right. Why did uh, Cymatics make you delete your YouTube channel? So when I uh, joined Cymatics, it was very very early on in their, uh, like they were like maybe two, three, four months into Cymatics. And they were sort of figuring out how to manage and lead. And part of that was they did not know how to come up with upfront uh, contracts explaining the needs of their company. And so I joined on and maybe a few weeks into working there, maybe even a month or two, they decided that a lot of my other work was a conflict of interest. So I had to uh, get on a call with Jesse Breda and tell him I couldn't work for Gravitas Create. I had to bail on Vespers out of nowhere and I had to quit the school I was teaching at and close my YouTube channel all at once. And saying that out loud makes me sound like a complete dick and I should have just dropped Cymatics. And in <laughs> retrospect, I probably should have, but... Um, well, uh, they, um, surely if, they, if you were dropping like a bunch of work at once, they were offering you a better deal, right? Better deal, and they dangled uh, some pretty good carrots in front of my face. You know, they they um, obviously are quite successful, and they pretty much 
promised me success if I came on with them. Like they'd even say like, you know, through our platform, we can help you become a a marshmallow type figure if you stay with us. And uh, at the time I was listening to like a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk and stuff like that. And Gary had a saying that it's like better to be number two at Facebook than number four at face schmuck and Mm. or number 10 at face schmuck. And for some reason, uh, all I cared about at that time in my career was quote unquote success. Um, So I decided to go with them, even though there's a lot more to music and my life than monetary success. And um, I had to learn, learn the hard way that I made the wrong decision. Right. So what, what was it that uh, made you stop working at Cymatics? Um, I mean, so, I mean, that was what I just told you is kind of one uh, line I felt that had gotten crossed where, you know, they weren't really upfront about their requirements. And I think throughout the process, there were just tons of miscommunications that just really made me upset with them. Um, like just conflicts of interest, such as uh, actually the the whole getter thing and just the whole project file was one thing because it kind of went against my morals. And, and you know, another time that that came up was I was talking to someone that worked at Monster Cat because I really, I admire Monster Cat. And I was like, hey, do you want a bunch of cymatic samples? I work here and they said, oh, we don't really like cymatics. And that kind of made me realize that some of their business practices were um, not necessarily the most honorable, at least at the time. And then there were other moments where, you know, I was working five days a week and then suddenly they demanded I work six days a week and I actually took a pay cut for that. So I actually started getting paid less for six days a week than five days a week. And they pretty much demanded I do that if I wanted to stay. Um, And then there was another situation where I, you know, they weren't giving any time off uh, at all because they were a new company or they gave us, I think they gave us four days off during the year, but it was all at the same time. And, um, you know, that really conflicted with me wanting to tour and play Shambhala. And um, I think I ended up being a dick and just going ahead and saying, well, I can still work while I do this. And I was doing that, but it wasn't the right hours or something. And it was just a big kind of conflict of interest. And I I do want to say, though, in case any of them hear this, that I think they were they were really uh, they're a great company. I think it was just uh, they were young and still figuring things out and it it kind of just conflicted with myself but i think they were pretty nice guys you know i I don't want to just shit on them like i'm doing right now yeah they've been really aggressive marketers and i think that that's kind of why they've become so successful they've just been very yeah very aggressive at everything they've been doing they Uh, are phenomenal marketers that's one i think the biggest takeaway from me working there was how good they are at marketing like literally there was a point where I was the only full-time sound designer and there was maybe a team of like six marketers <laughs> and then all the other sound designers were like freelance. Um, no, they're, they're smart. Honestly, I, I, I enjoyed working with them as much as I just um, complained. Like there were a lot of good moments and I definitely learned a lot. Like they, they managed to figure out a lot of really smart business moves in a really short amount of time. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what happens when you have six marketers just working on nothing but pushing samples. Yeah. Um, so what was the kind of work you did there? Did you make any like full cymatic sample packs or anything like that? So 
no single sample pack was one person unless it was like a small tripwire pack like a, a tripwire pack being like a just a small thing to essentially get you to enter your email or or buy it for one dollar so they have your credit card info and they or not that they have the, your credit card info that you get used to putting your credit card info in so you're more likely to buy um but I was, yeah, I was kind of like a sound designer as well as an uh, educator. So in terms of the sound design, you know, sometimes I would do serum presets and serum wavetables. But I was actually primarily um, like a drum designer and effect designer. So I would do a lot of kicks, snares, risers, downers, hi-hats. Um, you can imagine eight hours of making hi-hats. Your ears would be bleeding. It wasn't the most exciting. And then I was also, uh, for a short time, on the more of the education spectrum. So I was uh, you know, creating YouTube videos, but they also have courses now for a company called academy.fm. Um, but I also wore multiple hats where some days they needed me to just answer emails. So I would log into one of their emails and uh, pretend to be one of the uh, managers there and answer people's emails, that Damn. type of thing. Damn, that's cool. So you're the cymatics drum guy for a time. I haven't worked there, I think, in a year and a half, two years now. Um, but there was a time, and it was pretty exciting because I would hear my samples or my peers' samples in people's productions, and it did. It felt cool, you know, even if it if it was just like one sound they included, it just felt cool that they included it and it also was uh, i my skills increased dramatically over that period of time because although i wasn't songwriting to create drums and sounds all day um actually my engineering increased quite a bit because i got really good at hearing you know what makes a good transient what makes a good tail what makes a good bass patch um and although yeah, although I wasn't songwriting, I was getting paid to still do audio work. So I sound like I'm sure a lot of people think I sound shitty for complaining and maybe even quitting there. But uh, I did learn a lot. Yeah, I would agree. I've been uh, working on a sample pack now for a couple of months called Spectra, which will be out hopefully soon. I'm actually just going through the last few folders of sounds now. So pretty much what I did Um, so I'm I'm pretty disorganized or unorganized when I'm when sound designing usually i'll just like be sitting around bored and i'll just make a bunch of sounds and then be like oh cool and just like save a project file somewhere like on my desktop or like in my downloads folder or just in a random dropbox folder or you know i do have a folder called sound design sometimes they make it in there like it's just so my my hard drives and i had many hard drives were just scattered with like sound design files from the last five years yeah um so i went through all of those put them all in a single folder and now i've been going through and like just topping and tailing all of them and reprocessing them and layering them and stuff like that and rendering them all out <clears throat> into a, into folders uh, and and what i've got out of it so far is like a little over a thousand samples that are sounding pretty cool and yeah i definitely notice after working on this for the past few months my engineering has stepped up a fair bit because for the same reason you say it's like a lot of the stuff you're making are, are short sounds like drums uh, and i feel the shorter the sound and the quickest stuff has to happen sort of the better you get at engineering because it's like um you know you it's less forgiving i guess and i feel this way about drum and bass too right it's like it's a really hard genre to produce because everything happens so quickly and therefore you have to like make all like you have no sort of wiggle room for getting a a compression time wrong or or getting a fade 
slightly incorrect by a few milliseconds or whatever. So I feel like that that kind of stuff, you just get really attuned to getting it kind of perfect. And you become cognizant too of like even just how certain frequency ranges ring out. It's like if you're working on a snare, you're not going to have every fr- frequency ring out the same way. Like maybe the, the root harmonic, like the tonal part of the snare rings out for a certain amount of time while the white noisy top end, is that ringing out longer? Do you want it shorter? What sort of effect does that have? And I find um, you learn a lot that way. Have you, uh, I know you're a big fan of Soothe and that's actually the reason I got Soothe, but have you bought their other plugin Spiff? Yeah, I use Spiff all the time. Dude, fucking Spiff is the best. Sometimes yeah, I like good. it more than Soothe actually. Well, it's it's different, right? Like so sometimes you'll have a thing like a sample that sounds like it needs to be soothed but it really only sounds like it needs to be soothed because the clicks are sort of harsh and mm-hmm. that's kind of when spiff is good because pulls out the clicks rather than the than the harmonics yeah but, um, I, that's actually what i love about it is not even necessarily making things punchier although it's really good at that but making things softer it's actually really good at like removing transient um material or like softening transient material giving an attack yeah and i and i think that it's something like when i was kind of a novice producer i thought punchier was better (laughs) in terms of everything and as i've gotten older i actually find like sometimes a a kick with a bit of a nice thump like a soft thump to it or that type of sound actually is more uh nice on the ears and easier to listen to and actually has a bit more character than just like a snappy punchy sound well it's all relative to the track right So you just got to pick the right kick that sort of contrasts and gels with the track correctly or properly. Um, One thing I really like doing with Soothe and Spiff is uh, putting Delta mode on so you get nothing but the weird little clicks or nothing but the weird harmonics and then rendering that into a new channel and reprocessing just the sort of spectral harmonics. It's funny you you say that because I just released a sample pack through producer dojo called organica and a lot of the percussion i was making in that was me taking the delta from spiff from like foley and stuff and then taking the delta and turning processing that and turning those into percussion because it's so cool it's like this weird watery type of transient sound like I, i i do yeah i admire the delta sound from both of those yeah for and that sure. kind of ties that kind of ties into your philosophy of using plugins in ways they're not supposed to be used and that's kind of when you get some of the most interesting results and i think for anyone listening if you have plugins that you use a certain way try using it in a completely broken and unwarranted manner and see what you get yeah totally yeah i always love using plugins in the way you're not supposed to use them i feel like the thing is right is everybody has the exact same tools like everyone has ableton everyone has all the same plugins everyone has access to splice all that stuff so it's kind of like your only hope for being unique these days at least in the sense of sound design is to just use shit in the dumbest ways i feel like yeah exactly that and that's that's where the unique creative ideas stand out or you do the complete opposite and you just worry about the songwriting as we were mentioning before going full circle it's like well if we all have the same tools then maybe i just need to be a better songwriter than everyone else or or just have the unique ideas first right right hell yeah man well that's been about an hour so i feel like we should probably call it there i'm gonna go i need to go lift weights I need to do some exercise. I've been trying to just like do something every day, whether it be like going for a walk or a bike ride or lifting weights or something. I feel like this whole 
fighting addiction thing is it goes like hand in hand with that i'm just trying to force myself to do other things yeah i know i understand man all the best with it and i should probably uh go pee my puppy because he is very little and might pee somewhere in my house if i don't get him outside (laughs) soon (laughs) no worries man well thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate it yeah i appreciate it we'll have to do it again for sure all right have a good one have a good one see you man Hey, what's up? It's Mr. Bill. Uh, Patreon subscribers at the Pish Posh tier get to submit a track to be played on the podcast, and I will give it my honest feedback. So here it goes. Uh, This is RXLLZ. I don't know how to really pronounce that. I guess Rixil or something like that um, with Cellophane Skies.
Honestly, I think it progresses too slowly. Uh, for me, it's, I don't know, it takes just a really long time to get anywhere. I feel like it was about a minute or two before it even got to like any sort of point, which is um, it's probably fine, I think. 
that's maybe that's probably just subjective to be honest but yeah that, that was my thoughts on that i also think the drums could be snappier especially the snare uh so if you listen to say um on the recency effect that me and au5 made there's a track on on that release called schlappy vip so it's like the garage one if you listen to the snare in that it's kind of like a snappy like woody kind of thing i think something like that could could work really well for this track um the breakdown is awesome like those synths in the breakdown are full-on boards of canada vibes which is awesome I, I really love that stuff um i think funny would fucking lose his shit over that breakdown to be honest the one before the second drop i also like the fact that this track has just kind of tippered down tempo vibes overall which is cool but honestly it's not executed quite as well as tipper but the vibe is like totally there which is good so it's really just like production i think vibe is honestly harder to get than production tricks you know like the production stuff will come in time but vibe is just like it's really hard to to teach someone that so good work on nailing the vibe the only other thing i would say is that some of the edits in the second drop have like a lot of clicks and pops on them it sounds like you're doing some stuff with beat repeat or with samplers with like loop length changing and stuff like that and um just the transients on some of those looping elements sound a little clicky and weird so I would maybe look into putting some fades on them if they're in samplers or if you're using beat repeat, maybe rendering them to audio and putting like a D-click plugin on them or something like a Isotope RX has a D-click plugin. Um, but also don't take this, uh, <clears throat> uh, this piece of information to heart too much because what you might start doing as a result of me saying this is putting D-clicking shit on everything don't do that you want clicks on some stuff but you need to use it like uh, in a certain tasteful way and i just feel like there's maybe too too much clicking and stuff going on in that section um so yeah that's my honest feedback of this track all right if you want to have your track played on the podcast jump on at the pish posh level or higher on patreon and then send a track in and i'll let you know what i think Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I'm a